Imagine yourself under a starry sky around the warm glow of the sacred fire. As your hosts, Saren Odinson, Jim Two Snakes, and Caitlin Stormbreaker, talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late night conversations by real life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? As the winds of summer blow beyond us, the winds of autumn bring colorful leaves and chilly breeze, with the winds of winter nipping quietly at our heels. We transition into a time of contemplation, of rest, and of minor change. We take all of the lessons, all of the blessings, all of the teachings that we have received, and we bring them internally, and we plant our seeds so that when winter comes, the cold rain turns to freezing snow, preserving those thoughts, those ideas, those dreams so that when spring comes around, something new can bloom. We welcome autumn. We welcome the spirits that will be walking amongst us soon as the veil around us thins, our loved ones that are on the other side can begin to peek just a little bit further through. We welcome them with joy, with song, with merriment, and with drinks. We say hello and thank you for the harvests that we were able to reap. Welcome to those that came before, that gave us life and blood and breath. Thank you and welcome to those of us who paved the path for the rest of us. Welcome, Investuhail. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 78. I'm Jim Two Snakes, joined as always by my good friends and co hosts, Saren Thonson and Caitlin Stormbreaker. How are you both doing tonight? I'm tired. <laughs> Yay, tired. <laughs> Yay. Why is it that whenever you go on a long vacation, especially to a region where you tend to do a lot of spirit work, that you end up super tired at the end of it? Gee, I want to the last part of that word, you know, <laughs> yeah. that yeah. W word. Yeah, yeah, that capital W. <laughs> yeah, mm. no, I'm, I'm actually really great. Um, we had a wonderful oh, trip up north, and it was a just... It, it was great to just find places to sit and just remember the awe of nature. You know, the, the adoration that you get from being out in big nature, you know, down here, we got a lot of big cities and a lot of big farmland up there. They have big forests and big hills that they call mountains, quote unquote, um, <laughs> big, All matter cold, perspective. 
Yeah, yeah, true, true. I mean, it's called Porcupine Mountains, but we didn't go there, so it doesn't count. Um, but to to interface and interact with something that hasn't quite been fully polluted yet, it's still a little bit off the beaten path, a little bit still quiet under the radar, and it was just, it's nice to recenter and reground in those areas. Yeah. So I'm familiar with Porcupine Mountain. Thanks, Sarath. <laughs> For those who will be able to see this, this big-ass rock is what Sarah brings me from Porcupine Mountain, like I'm going to put it in my Mesa. <laughs> oh, come on. Are you sure you don't want to carry that around with you everywhere you go? Jesus, I forgot I handed that to you. <laughs> This rock's yours. (laughs) Right? So for those of you who don't get the video, that rock is about the size of a grapefruit. Or a little bit bigger. Yeah. That was really fun hauling that out of there. (laughs) Because the Porcupine Mountains where we're staying, it's about a two-mile hike to the site. And if it's in winter, it's a six-mile. So we actually got to park the car a lot closer than we would have if we'd gone in winter. However, if we'd gone in winter which would have probably been the smarter option. We wouldn't have had to deal with black flies on the side of a goddamn horse. Yeah. Well, black flies are only around in July and August. So you got to go in like June, September, October time. Yeah. To... Yeah. We went yeah. right in the middle of black fly season. It was. Yeah. They suck. Fabulous. Uh-huh. <laughs> Super fun. As I was reading, because the uh, place we were staying has a log in it. And as I was reading, I'm like, wow, these logs seem to be clustered around June or winter. June or winter. The wrong time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I keep trying to uh, explain to my husband that the best time to go up north is either June or fall or winter. Like, we can't go up in July or August, but that's when he always wants to go. And I'm like, dude, no, (laughs) let's not. (laughs) That's a bad idea. But how are you, Sarah? Who, me? Or Jim? Oh, hell. I was going to say, I was going to turn it on Jim for a change. Oh, yeah. How are you, Jim? <laughs> you get to go first I'm this not time. bad. I, you know what? I am, it's strange because I'm tired, but I shouldn't be. Last mm-hmm. night, I'm like thinking, I'm really tired, so I'm just going to go to bed early. And, you know, that rarely happens, so I'll just get up early in the morning. It'll be no big deal. Well, you know, the thing about working uh a, a second or a third shift like like Sarah and I do is you kind of black out the light from your room a little bit mm-hmm. so when I woke up 12 hours later I thought huh <laughs> I might have slept a little bit <laughs> you guys know me that is so rare I don't normally yeah. sleep like that unless I'm ill so it was just wow Body shut you know, down I was like yeah. yeah right like I don't know what the hell happened and then so you know being being uh human nature like it is that instead of being rested i was feeling tired the rest of the day it was like sitting in my chair like i'm gonna watch i'm gonna do something productive and then i get mad at myself that you don't always need to be productive and so you know (laughs) that was my day um (laughs) constant internal struggle of those of us that grew up in a capitalist society of (laughs) right oh you know i really should rest today but i feel guilty about resting because i really should be doing something right man yeah, and that that good old that good old Catholic guilt too of oh man, you're indulging. <laughs> like yes, yes, I am. I am a pagan. I am a horrible hedonist pagan indulging myself. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Suck it, capitalism. Oh. So, 
capitalism sucks so bad, but <laughs> the root of all of Can our I problems. Mm. Right. Okay, now it's Sarah's turn. Right. So uh, <laughs> let's see. I did a 16-hour shift so that I could go house hunting. Went house hunting, very quickly went, grabbed food, and now I'm here. Like that's been my day. Like I slept for about five hours. <laughs> and uh I'm pretty much like uh caffeine and irritation. Although I think we may have, <laughs> I think we may have actually found the house or any we're putting in an really? offer and yes. uh it's a it's really pretty it's it's all brick oh nice and it's got a fireplace it's got yeah it's it's a nice house it's um hopefully we get it hopefully we'll get outbid by zillow or some other jack off who's just going to sell the property down the line Mm -hmm. like that's that's the most frustrating thing about all this is you jump through so many hoops to qualify for the mortgage only to watch as some jag off you're never going to see who's never going to actually live in the house buys it out from underneath you and then flips mm-hmm. it for a higher price. It's like, I, I don't understand why we allow companies to do this. Like you're never going to, you're never going to occupy it. Maybe if you're lucky, you could turn it into a rental property, but you're going to, you're rolling the dice on that one. Because Sarah, remember under us law, corporations are people and people deserve housing. <sighs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yay, America! Fuck yeah, America! <laughs> <laughs> so, so apparently, we're in a feisty mood, and we are in a mood. for our guest tonight. <laughs> so, uh, back with us again. Thankfully, uh, is Stefano Stelladorius, and I really appreciate you coming out again because, uh, for those who don't know, we had a serious goof with zoom recording our last meeting and Chaldoris was I mean, it's my fault i made i made eye contact with the loki statue during the recording <laughs> <laughs> well Don't you know at least at least you're uh you're better than some heathens out there to where you're blaming yourself and not actually loki so <laughs> yes anyway. i called you all out deal with it <laughs> but I really appreciate you coming on the show again. Childorius is a Greek polytheist and is, among many other things, um, reviving some ancient mysteries in a new fashion, which I'm very excited to hear you talk about, as well as your other projects that you've got going on right now. Welcome to the show again, Stephanos. <laughs> Welcome back. Yay. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me again. Um, <laughs> first time I'm... <laughs> Doing we get to be your first interview. and second interview because we rock that yes. way. <laughs> yeah, first time I've done a second interview for something that hasn't even done the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I it's, like I to mean, be everybody's first, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technology and me don't really work very well together. So I, if you ever had a problem with any recordings, it would definitely be mine. So I mean, you're well, I think it's something I think, honestly, you know, at this point, it's, it's got to be something with Greek polytheists in general, because I had this exact same issue with VSVL when I had the uh, M on you're the right. first time. You're I, I right. Think, I think it's just, you know, the Greek gods just do not like 
recording technology. I don't know. So yeah, so tell us how Greek polytheists <laughs> are anti-technology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, y'all did develop the first computer, the uh, Antikytheria. I mean, this is true. That was good enough, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we were like, no, never again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, that is really awesome. So, so since no one else but us has heard this before, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and what kind of things that you're into. Fair warning. There is no way I can just, uh, you know, repeat what we said last time. I don't know. I, I got a really good <laughs> quote, though, if that refreshes your memory. This is my favorite quote from last Mine time. Mine too. Do what you want. Just don't join a cult. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mother's quote when i was uh started getting into paganism and polytheism in when i was like 14 um i'm okay so i'm greek i live in athens greece i've been um, involved in paganism polytheism magic and mysticism for over 16 years now i have uh, studied theology Christian Orthodox theology, but I've, I found that it taught me a lot of things that are helpful in, as a polytheist as well. And I aim to be this very imbalanced uh, scholar of religion, theologian slash ecstatic worshiper of ancient gods. So it's an interesting uh, vocation. Uh, I'm also in the middle of uh, a number of projects, the most important being what Sarenth mentioned. Uh, I um, hesitate to call it reviving ancient mysteries because technically I don't want to sound like those people who are like, oh, um, you know, I the gods downloaded uh, all this information into my very special ma- mind. <laughs> but... That's pretty much what happened, so only, only slightly more rational. I'm working on a um, modern mystery cult focused on a syncretic form of Hecate called Hecate Despina. Uh, a lot of um, fair warning, my pronunciation will be cl- closer to modern Greek, and so a lot of people might not really recognize names immediately because uh, we don't say, for example, Dionysus, we say Dionysus. So people might be confused. Despina is basically a title that means mistress and she's an obscure goddess of ancient Arcadia. She was um, a daughter of Demeter and Poseidon, uh, as opposed to Persephone or Kore, who is the daughter of Demeter and Zeus. She was also a mystery goddess. And from what very little we know of her mystery cults in ancient Arcadia, she was very respected in the region and at the same time very, not feared exactly, but people just wouldn't uh, speak her name or they wouldn't reveal anything to non-initiates. So that is a problem for us nowadays when we try to figure anything out and there is literally nothing to go on. My attempt is through a combination of academic 
research and theology, as well as the hands-on experience of the gods and mystic interaction and the gaining of uh, intimate knowledge through such ritual and practice. Because I'm a firm believer in the idea that the gods can teach us things now. They can interact and be active with us now. We are in living living religions. We are not simply role-playing an ancient, I don't know, dream. And it's about gods who can actually teach us the mysteries today. Yes, we've lost the ancient forms, but they are still around, they are still active, and they can still teach us again. So I'm basically trying to balance out the ecstatic knowledge with actual research and see what patterns arise in, in antiquity, what kind of information can I can use to fill in the gaps, because, of course, there is no message from or knowledge gained from the gaps that is exact and uh, fully uh, comprehensible at first glance. A lot of it is cryptic, and that's entirely our own problem and filter. Uh, so it's it's a big uh, it's a big project that actually got funded and recognized by Indic Academy's Center for. Okay, I don't remember the title of the center outright. It's a bit of a big one. I think it's Center for Global Indigenous and Polyphased something. (laughs) Sorry, it's, um, you know, academic. Sirens is looking now. (laughs) Yeah, academic names. I believe uh, Dr. Butler talked about it. It's the Global Polytheist and Indigenous Traditions. Traditions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They had a fellowship uh, program um, that concluded on May this year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was one of the three people who were awarded the fellowship grant. I was one of the two reviving polytheism uh, winners, actually. And I'm trying to contribute the things I consider significant and important and lacking in modern polytheistic communities, especially Hellenic polytheism, because uh, there is this uh, widespread idea that Hellenic polytheists are against magic and against mysticism, which is true of modern practitioners for some, for many reasons, really. I have, uh, um, they are complicated and mostly inaccurate, Uh, (laughs) but uh, it's true that modern Hellenic polytheists in general tend to be against magic and against mysticism, Mm. but uh, I disagree with that. And as I argued in my proposal when I submitted this project, people obviously have a need and and an interest in mysticism and in magic and in esotericism. There are otherwise all these traditions like Wicca and ceremonial magic and so many initiatory traditions, they wouldn't flourish. Obviously, people find something calling them there. And I've also noticed over the years with my involvement, mostly in the international communities, 
less so in the local ones because they have a host of problems, that people in Hellenic polytheism tend to fade out of Hellenic polytheism specifically as a primary identification, not necessarily fade out of their relationships with these gods, but out of the community because it lacks a lot of things that other communities might be better at uh, giving them. So I've seen a lot of polytheists being like, oh, I still worship these gods. I'm still devoted to these gods, but Wicca helps me more. It has what I need or heathenry or uh, chemeticism or so many other traditions. Yeah, so I'm, basically, I'm glad I'm, you're pushing yeah. against that because it's so ahistorical. So mm-hmm. ahistorical. We have Hercules showing up in India. We have various Chinese and Indian gods being adopted as kami. We have all over the globe examples that polytheists freely worship gods from many cultures and that the borders of cultures were porous, not hard. There's a, a very big difference between worshiping local gods and local spirits and ripping them away from people or taking them out of their historical and cultural context, Salah appropriation. It, this is an active football in, in a lot of heathen communities. Like how do we live as heathens on stolen land? How do we live as heathens here in America, honoring our God's ancestors and the, the spirits of this place? So I'm really happy to hear that you're pushing back against that with all your might too, because God's knows that <laughs> polytheists and animists need to keep that fight up too. Because that way, if we don't, that way is that's where folkism rises out of uh, these hard, impermeable boundaries, and dictated by genetics or dictated by race or horseshit concepts, basically like genetic soul or whatever. Yeah, which was never accurate in the so-called glorified uh, civilizations and cultures of the past, mm-hmm. even in Greece. Uh, Greek was whoever spoke the language and understood, you know, Greek culture. You could be of any descent whatsoever from any country in the world. Even many of the major philosophers of later, like Hellenistic and late antiquity eras, were not Greek by genetics. I mean, they were, but you wouldn't dream to not consider them Greek. They were major figures in western civilization but yeah i'm i'm of the opinion that we cannot limit the gods obviously we are just human beings if they want to be worshipped by someone who isn't uh, traditionally part of their groups or worshippers no one can stop them at the same time i think pagan and polytheist communities have a bit too much uh, individualism and a bit too much anything goes which as a person I'm very uh, I tend to be very fond of and in support of do your own thing and I mean ultimately it doesn't matter what all these people on the internet say it matters what you do in your own life and in your own space but at the same time when you come not just online but in a community whether physically, locally, or internationally and digitally, and you make claims and statements that 
affect other people's understanding, and especially new practitioners, new beginners who are like, oh, this person speaks with authority, so they must be right. Oh, oh I've heard that so-and-so said that you cannot do this and you cannot worship different gods. And I'm like, mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm never not going to push back against that. I can't remember if it was Andrea Vitimus or or Gaia Saucery that said on our show here that, to a large degree, I think some of that individualism and that anything goes attitude is not only influenced by by culture, but also in the sense that um, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, sort of behind the scenes, chaos magic won the argument. And there's a lot of freedom that people were pursuing with that anything goes sort of attitude. What I really want to ask, though, I'm, I'm very curious about, because I think you would be perfect to define it. The Even the term mystery school or mystery tradition is something that we read a lot in the literature as pagans, especially as new pagans or polytheists. And you're working on creating a new mystery tradition. How do we define a mystery tradition? What does that even mean? Good question. Um... <laughs> Basically, I cannot. I really, I can only speak for Hellenic polytheism and modern uh, magical traditions. I cannot really say, oh, this is definitely how it would be for, um, you know, Northern European or India, um, India or any other places. Although, I mystery traditions tend to be to have some common. Uh, com- attributes that's why they are all termed mystery traditions specifically the way i understand it and the way i've learned about it from my academic studies is that a mystery tradition or mystery cult as it's usually called not with the uh, modern negative sense of the word obviously is a specific tradition within a overarching religion whether a central as one with a central authority like Christianity or one that is decentralized and or polycentric as Dr. Butler would say, like Hellenic polytheism. It's a specific tradition that devotes itself to specific gods, whether one or a few more, very interconnected with each other, like the Lysinian mysteries are a mother and daughter mystery cult. And it deals with specific domains of those gods and how they interact with human spirituality and very often hum- the afterlife of a human person. Uh, usually, Mr. Cults would essentially profess to grant their initiates a different alternative in terms of what happens after death. For example, in Many, like in the Orphic traditions, the idea was that as an initiate, you and as an initiate, you had the qualifications and the knowledge to not be blindly reincarnated every time and forget your previous lives and just uh, become trapped in this endless incarnation cycle, but to elect to either incarnate with memory and thus become an enlightened individual, a teacher, a religious figure or something, or to just be with the gods and never return to (laughs) this um, 
difficult thing we call um, you know corporeal existence. Mystery uh, traditions in general are the deeper part of religion, the more uh, personal, the more intimate part. Uh, they have outwardly they have strong laws and rules and certain strict um, ideas about how to approach them and how to practice them because they are so intimate and so uh, something to be safeguarded. And but in truth, it's the most individual experience one can have in a religion beyond just the common worship or the household worship one might have a mystery tradition is the most profound and uh, personal experience one can have of the gods and the deepest one not in the sense of it's better than the rest of the religion because it obviously hinges on it but in a mystery tradition you get to experience a, a gods or a group of gods I won't. I don't say truth, but their uh, everything basically their experience in a far more ineffable and mind-opening way. For me, even in modern times, people have mystical experiences and mystery. Uh, ex- they experience the mysteries, as we often say, uh, in the sen- not in the sense of mysteries as the human traditions, but as in the actual reality of the gods and it's it's um everyone that's why i'm i'm a supporter of the idea that we can still have mystery traditions we can still organize all this into actual practices because people still get those profound moments with gods they still get those experiences where oh suddenly they see and feel and go through something beyond words so uh, well the simple definition would be mystery traditions codify and organize that ineffable intimate moment into something that can be repeated and um, replicated for a lot of people. I like that because it seems to me just the way you're describing it. And that's wonderful. Actually, I've never heard that definite or defined that way. And I like that a lot, but it seems to me that this is a, uh, I would want to call it a missing gap in not just Hellenic, but maybe in a lot of different practices, because we have, I've noticed in our communities, we have people that are, you got the people that are just beginning, people that are a little bit more experienced, and then everyone wants to make this leap up to being a priest. And really, it seems to me that the the learning and growth that a, growth that a, a mystery tradition could provide is that gap in between moderately experienced and priests that a lot of traditions are are lacking and and having something that's kind of codified and defined and it, it seems like a really deepening process that could be really a useful concept great and absolutely because a lot of people jump at the idea of becoming a priest not necessarily because they want to serve as a priest but because they want to feel that powerful connection that constant connection that they perceive priests as having like oh he's a priest or they are a priest so they must be in constant communion and presence of the gods and constant their lives must be magical and mystical and filled with the gods all the time but 
well, that's on one hand, that's not true necessarily, uh, but priesthood is not for everyone. Priesthood, like everything else, is work. <laughs> uh, it's a calling, it's a vocation, and that's a big reason why mystery traditions existed, because not everyone could be a priest or should be a priest, but almost everyone could be an initiate of some kind, because ancient mystery cults weren't usually as complicated as some modern ones where you have years of training and multiple degrees of rank within. They were mostly like, okay, go through this preparation a few months earlier, and when it's the proper period, just go through the ritual process and voila, you're an initiate. But you also had no particular authority. Being an initiate simply meant you are. You know, you have seen the hidden truths of the tradition and you have experienced the actual mysteries. And it's true, we don't, a lot of modern traditions lack that. We don't have, even those that have more organized um, groups and more organized practices like public rituals or uh, even temples in some cases, they lack this commonplace connection to religious experience. They, we don't have that in our daily lives are mundane and secular as can be. And they would be for ancient uh, Greeks and ancient practitioners as well. But for a Christian, for example, in Christian dominant countries in the West, it's very easy to get that experience because you can easily find the church, you can easily find the priest, you can easily stumble upon, I don't know, a cemetery which has Christian symbols and possibly a funeral going on. You can easily encounter the numinous in your daily life. Well, for pagans, well, that's also why we gravitate towards nature so much, because it's the next best thing to our uh, lacking human community. Well, I like it too, because it seems to me like, you know, a lot of times when you get into polytheism, there are attractions that you have to certain deities. And, and you do that because a lot of times there's things in your life that you've gone through, you've experienced, there's lessons that you want to learn, whatever the case may be. And instead of making that jump right to I am a priest of Hades. You could actually be more of the mindsets where, where I am just, I'm still a, a Hellenic pagan, but I am now in the, these certain set of mystery traditions to, to deepen my understanding of that particular area, which seems really valuable. It seems both uh, constructive and having a structure, but still not limiting, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think all of us here as spirit workers and possibly, I, sorry, I don't know exactly your uh, <laughs> sp- uh, circumstances, but I, 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 know, don't, I don't know my title from day to day either. So it's all right. Yeah. I, I know Sarans, for example, and being who we are is such a demanding thing and such a difficult vocation it's not something people do just to be to have 
fun. I mean, I hope we do have fun. Yeah, sure, because I mean... <laughs> well, I and mean, I, I, I think I was, another thing that people okay. need to realize is that even though you make it to priesthood, you still have to go through all that stuff. Maybe not as regularly or as viscerally, but you still go through like a mystery tradition or through shadow work or through the difficult boggy shitty moments of spirituality like i i think that's a big common misconception when it comes to like witch talk or the witch people that they think that it, once you reach that higher level within the tiers of the community that oh i'm done i'm spiritually enlightened and i can do all these wonderful amazing things until they hit rock bottom again and they're like wait i have to climb the ladder again only this one's like super hot and covered in grease and on fire what the fuck i like that and, well, and the point was made too that not everybody's cut out to be a priest i might really want to be involved in working and learning in a certain paradigm but i might not be the person that wants to receive the 3 a.m calls that you got to go out to a graveyard and perform some sort of ritual and spend half your income on freaking candles and offerings so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sarah is letting his pleasure known at that too, right? Not everybody yeah. wants that responsibility. Not everybody's good at that responsibility. So there is a huge value in having ways of depthening your understanding and your practice without being the priest, so quote unquote. I think too, like we overemphasize spirit workers, priests, and other spiritual specialists to the detriment of regular observers of cultists it's something that has bothered me for a very long time i am the only like straight up spirit worker in my house and it's uh, that's not a bad thing like you you have between the conflicting schedules oh i've got to do this offering i've got to do this work i've got to do this that the other thing that can get really hectic really quick like my hat's off to to folks um, who are in like nesting partnerships where they've got multiple spirit workers in the house, that has got to be rough. Yeah. Um, the the thing too is like we we denigrate the experience of the everyday initiate at the risk of our communities because our that's that's the bread and butter of our communities. Otherwise, what in the hell are we doing all this work for, right? I mean, if, if the average person can't access it and it isn't useful in a more occult sense, and I'm, I'm using that in the sense of uh, getting shit done spiritually, if I can't use it for that purpose and it's not serving the community in terms of connecting with the gods, ancestors, or spirits, what in the hell are you doing it for? Agreed. I, I'm actually curious if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember correctly, in the episode that was not an episode um i think i remember you talking about how you were not necessarily raised christian or catholic orthodox at all you didn't really have a religious upbringing correct when you were younger not a strict one at least yes yes um, i I'm, so i did my, have god sorry so I, I did have a an up really an orthodox upbringing as far as the country being very orthodox, even in schools and everything. But my family was very, very relaxed about it. So I was very lucky. 
So I guess my, my curiosity is because your, your main studies were Christian Orthodox theology. How did studying the theology of Christianity help you with developing the mystery practice and protocol? Like, did any of it translate over? Did any of it inspire uh, your building of this kind of work? You know, um, did it help at all in the rebuilding or reconstruction of this sort of path? The short answer is yes, it did. It helped. But the longer answer is not directly. It's been years since I've been out of uh, university, so it hasn't been a direct uh, correlation like, oh, I'm studying it uh, during the day and at night I'm like, oh, I can use that to build my own thing. It's been many years. but um, And I also got into theology after already being pagan for mm, five years. <laughs> so I was already in the whole mindset of this is not my tradition. This is not, I don't have doubts. I don't have, I'm not on the cusp of conversion. So I'm like, maybe it can convince me to remain Christian or anything like that. For me, my theology studies convinced me that this is absolutely not my calling. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, it's actually why I don't have a degree. I never finished the degree and I dropped out. It's a big reason. The horrible educational system is the other main reason. (laughs) It became impossible to just pass after a while. But uh, if I'm honest, one of the biggest factors that I stopped my theology studies was that I couldn't lie anymore. I couldn't profess Christian theological beliefs and creeds while holding something diametrically opposed. Well, I mean, I had to, I had to take exams where I had to basically say, yes, this is the truth. And at the same time, I felt, but it's not. <laughs> that said, it helped me in many ways, not the least being that it gave me access to academic material for Hellenic polytheism because of a singular elective course. <laughs> uh, and it gave me a, the best way to put it is it gave me an example of what an organized extant theological approach is like. How does a religion with very strong mystery elements like Christianity does to explain those, to, to, um, expand them, to deepen them and it also gave me uh, a sort of um, ammunition to compare and contrast, like because Hellenic polytheism, like so many pagan polytheist traditions, is very different from Christianity and monotheistic religions in general. So it gave me this um, a tool set that isn't quite suited for my uh, <laughs> needs, but at the same time, it was easy for someone who doesn't have access to a an established community with established priesthoods, with established theological traditions to say, because we cannot just join a group and say, oh, okay, this is what uh, I don't like, or this is what 
uh, lacks from this group so I can just do my own thing. We have to start from scratch. And having that different toolkit to compare and be like, oh, okay, they uh, rely a lot on uh, interpreting scripture, which isn't a big deal for us because we don't have scripture. But at the same time, we do have so many texts that we need to study and understand the myths, the philosophers, so many things that we have to interpret and translate even literally to our own time. So for me, that was because, I mean, Christianity studies, the church fathers who are almost 2000 years old in terms of (laughs) textual age of text. So for me, it's a nice example of almost reconstructionism in the sense that, oh, they do study something very old and I can apply that approach to an extent for our um, mess. <laughs> it helps Actually, to uh, corral the cats, really, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I'm actually kind of curious about that because you were, use the word reconstructionism. And I'm, I'm curious because I think this is something that you and Sarenth could actually probably talk about a little bit. The, the difficulty, the interesting parts, because like you said, um, polytheism doesn't have the same sort of scriptures, right? But there are some historical sources. And I would argue that what you and Sarenth probably do is a lot more re-envisioning than reconstruction, but you butt up against reconstructionists. And so how do you guys both deal with that when you butt up against reconstructionists and how are you coping with things like nationalism within those movements? So you want me to take the lead on this or do you want to go for it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Reconstructionism itself is not a fucking community. There is no reconstructionist community, period. End of sentence. Why? Reconstructionism is a goddamn methodology. It is not not a fucking community you have racist assholes who will pluck information either cherry pick this shit or they'll just make up their own conclusion based on whatever racialist bullshit they want to put on top of it but reconstructionism is a method it is not a community and i am so frustrated to hear this come out of new kids mouths when they come to paganism like no no reconstructionism is literally for everybody reconstructionism is how you separate ice cream from bullshit when you're looking at historical resources it's not there as a gatekeep to whether or not you're a good polytheist you can be a perfectly good polytheist without engaging in reconstructionism at all you can have an entirely modern perfectly fine polytheism with almost zero input from the history of whatever gods you're worshiping and it is still valid as a polytheism. What the problem is, is when you get people who will make historical claims and have no idea how to check their bullshit. <laughs> That's where reconstructionism is really useful. But the, the work that I do as a heathen, when I go to, say, Dr. Price and the Viking Way, what I am not looking for is to sit down with an academic and get religious instruction. I am trying to separate historical ice cream from bullshit. Is this a genuine thing that was done in the past? What might it look like if we do it today? I am not looking to Dr. Price to be a priest. And I really would like polytheists to stop fucking doing that. 
Thank yes, thank you. Please. <laughs> Sorry, I I am tired and in rant mode. <laughs> yes, I well. <laughs> Everything Sarant just said uh, <laughs> applies to me too. Just like that, and then so. <laughs> yeah, but I, I can uh, elaborate a bit on my uh, opinion if you, it's not. Um, Please. I mean, it, it's a little more moderate. <laughs> <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate your more diplomatic approach. No, uh, it's not moderate when it comes to racist, fascist, nationalist. Idiots to be, you know, polite about it because I don't want to ruin your um, podcast. Well, uh, you don't have to worry about that. We okay. We will chew them up and spit them out. Not only can you, yeah, you can curse, you can call them out. We, oh yeah. I don't know. You can be open to throwing a you, curse if you want. Well, uh, we can try yeah, these you, things. You can definitely yeah. say the word "fuck." We are fine with it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, you might appreciate I, this. Just say the word "folkish" and then cross it out in the air. Uh, yeah, I'd rather not even say the word. <laughs> Fair um, enough. I it's a big issue in local, especially in local communities. I know it's a big issue in international communities as well, but it's the local part hurts more because I see it easily. <laughs> you know, I avoid it, and I have avoided the local community for for years now because of that. But. Uh, to return to the whole reconstructionist uh, question and subject, like Saran said, reconstructionism is a methodology. It's the methodology of taking historical information, vetting it, cross-referencing it, referencing it, and seeing how it can be adjusted or even used as is, if possible, in modern times, needs, and occasions. It's not about just being like, oh, how can we do things exactly like the ancient Athenians of 525 BC would do? Because, well, that's impossible. We don't live in that time period. Even for me in Athens, I can go right up to the Acropolis and be, well, I cannot go into the Parthenon, obviously, because it's a historical monument. but I can go right to the same spots as those people all these thousands of years ago, and I still cannot do it the exact same way. So uh, it bothers me because reconstructionism has come to mean this very rigid, obsessive idea of copying the past as, as closely as possible with isn't the point. The point is to bring, to literally reconstruct something that was lost and shattered and destroyed and to make it usable again, to make it living again. We don't need to reconstruct anything just to be close to the gods or to experience the gods or to have an actual spirituality and an actual religious experience. But if we want to do things in ways that work, and not have to go through the entire process of literally creating everything from scratch. Reconstructionism is necessary because you have to, I mean, we have, we are lucky to have some information from ancient practitioners. We, and we need ways to use that today. So that's reconstructionism. Unfortunately, and 
that's how I, I begrudgingly deal with this um, global understanding that um, oh, recons, reconstructionists are this. I will say how I disagree and why reconstructionism is not the religion, reconstructionism is the methodology, but I will intentionally call myself a revivalist if I'm pushed to say how I approach the past because I'm more into reviving the spirit of the idea and useful practical information rather than oh can I wear a toga and be <laughs> and go on the Acropolis and say the kings in the exact uh, ancient Greek that's not the point it kind of strikes me the way the way you just outlined that the the analogy that my brain comes up with is reconstructionism is somewhat like a museum it's it can be beautiful it's important to know where you come from it's the academic research it's seeing things that inspire you and 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 might uh uh inspire how you practice but no one actually lives there I would I would say the difference between reconstructionism as most people understand it and revivalism as I practice it is it's the difference between a museum with reconstructionism and lived history with reenactment. Exactly. Exactly. The, the difference is yeah the people I mean there are folklore museums here which show you how Greek rural Greeks fifty years ago lived and believed. But there are also efforts by actual descendants of those people who try to revive certain folk traditions and certain approaches, even farming technologies. So exactly, that's the difference between reconstructionism and revivalism as people tend to. Yeah, that see makes them. a lot of sense because I'm, I'm, I'm a board member for uh, a local historical society and we once a year have a, a uh, an event where we have people come in and older people in the community will demonstrate old farming techniques. And the reason that you do that is because you want the kids to understand why modern farms are like they are like it, that by understanding how tilling techniques used to be, that now makes you understand why tilling techniques are like they are now. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, having done historical reenactment and having done my fair share of rituals in garb. There's also a marked difference between say most of my rituals I'm wearing what I'm wearing most every day, like just to be perfectly, perfectly honest about it. And then there are some days where I want to get really dressed up and um, I might throw on my, my Viking age outfit. What I'm not doing is cosplay. What I'm not doing is playing around or, or reenacting. I am, intentionally putting myself into garb that my ancestors might have worn in order to bring in that ancestral focus or element. What I'm not doing is play acting, LARPing, cosplaying, which are all fine and fun. God knows I love to watch a lot of folks on TikTok who even do Viking cosplay and got Viking garb. Black Viking Reacts, I think, is one of the guys that I follow. He does a lot of, of Viking cosplay, which is fine. He looks good in it, too, what's more. But I separate myself from that. Like, I'll wear my Viking garb to a Renaissance fair or to Vi Nordic Vi Fire Festival. But 
that's because those are communal events that I feel like I can actually wear that stuff in and I won't be mistaken for what I'm doing. But the reenactment and the revival aspects of the religion, for me at least, because so much of the Nordic cultures are getting so much more access now in terms of the historical stuff. It's funny because like some of that has to be like a ferreting out process of, is this something that I can realistically speaking bring into my everyday practice or is this ritual wear? you know, is this particular item from the past even applicable anymore? Kind of like what you're talking about with farming techniques like what farm why did they do this what was the purpose is it better to go back to the old ways or is it better to adopt them or or leave them in the past um i think arguably there's a lot of of old methods that we're re-engaging with now because we recognize that how we do things with modern farming is deeply poisonous and disturbing to the land Right. Well, I mean, like farming is really one of the perfect analogies in a lot of ways, because like um, there are old techniques that we should be reengaging in because they're better for farming altogether and for nature and for the environment. At the same point in time, there's stuff that needs to be left behind, like deep till deep plowing and and that sort of thing, which absolutely needs to be left behind because that's actually more damaging. So farming is a great analogy for for. Uh, revitalizing some of these traditions because we have to with forethought and reason look at the reasons why we're doing things and then incorporate best practices that's what we call it in the farming game there best practices i mean even even in your groups that you've talked about jim you know being a papa messiah being a paco you've talked a lot about having to basically trawl through the what little information is still left around and having to pluck out genuine practices from interpolation. I mean, this is something that every polytheist animist struggles with on some level, if you have any basis in, in historical anything. Like, if you're making everything off the top of your head, you don't struggle with it in terms of, like, looking to the past because you're not, you're not building anything on the past. You're building a whole new, whole new ballgame from the ground up. But, I mean, even you've talked about it quite a bit in the past about how challenging it can be to read some of these materials and pull something useful out of them. And honestly, th- that's why we but- have Marco. <laughs> we love you, Marco. I'm just going to throw in my, my two cents here for the, the people who are reconstructionists who don't necessarily remain in the past, but are only using it as like a foundation or as acad- academic purposes. Um, that's fine. If, but if you use reconstructionist viewpoints of purity of blood and ancestry and use it for exclusionary purposes, that is, that that's not okay. You know, um, we as pagans, you know, not only our ancestors, but the spirit and the persona that we take on as pagans that spirit is sort of damaged from thousands of years of oppression and being shot down and carrying the name of, of pagan or of other, or of the first religions that were around, you know, to utilize your religion 
in a way that is exclusionary to certain individuals, you're just repeating wounds that were placed upon that spirit of paganism thousands of years ago. But looking at reconstructionism as reconstructionist practices using the foundations of what we have to build something new as you should be as per the term of reconstructionist you're not using the old bricks you're not using the old methods you're not using the old thatched roofing that your ancient ancestors used you're looking at their methods looking at what they did and how they did it and revitalizing it and bringing it into a newer age so that we can better understand what they did and how that practice fits into our life now. Because honestly, I don't live under a thatched roof. I don't live in a longhouse. I don't travel by longship or Shetland pony. You know, I don't have a corgi in my household. I, I don't have any of that. I, I have a cat and you know what? Corgis are fucking adorable. And I would have one if I was allowed, but um utilizing the myths as a window to look into how they practice and then revisioning how that works for you in your life that's what you should be doing that's what everybody should be doing oh, and God. if you don't have that structure there look to somebody else's religion that actually has that structure and i'm probably going to get some hate for this and i don't fucking care but you know what christianity and the judaic uh religions actually have that structure for ritual for looking at scripture for understanding how to run sermons or even talk to people or to look a little deeper into those words if you have trauma that is centered around that i understand why you don't want to go there and that's fine you don't have to but there are other cultures there are other places you can look for the help to understand how to understand your path i think this this is also something i should I feel like I should say, because I follow a lot of Jewish TikTokers, be very careful with what you choose to use as a, a compliment or as a jumping off point, because you can inadvertently continue oppression and the ongoing issues that a lot of minority communities still face. To, this is also true of African traditional religious practices, Jewish practices. Just be careful about what you, you take as inspiration or a jumping off point, just because you, you're, unless you know the culture and unless you've been talked with by somebody that has a position of authority within the culture, it can be really hard sometimes to determine if you're taking stuff out of context, appropriating that kind of thing. So just, just my, for my own two cents worth, just, be careful with how you approach other people's material for your own needs. Yeah, that's that be, fair. That being said, I, I have no problem with comparing my path to others and saying, well, that looks like something that's really cool and could work on this path. But I also, I also know that there's pitfalls there too. Right. Actually. So I'm curious, I think this is a good point in the conversation to kind of jump and, and transition into the thought like, okay, so we're, we, we've looked at reconstructionism versus uh, revitalizing something or reviving it. How do you then go about creating a brand new mystery tradition? I know you're writing a book about it, but what does that yeah. process look like? Because that seems incredibly intense. It is. It is very intense. 
in many different ways. It's intense, literally and physically, when it comes to actual ritual. It's also intense in the sense of some days and from all the studying and writing, and my brain turns into mass. <laughs> so it's intense. What I, in my opinion, because um, okay, if I'm not a little prideful, what? Well, what's the point? Um, I try to use all three um, major approaches, basically reconstructionism, revivalism, and innovation. Because, yes, it's obvious that uh, revivalism and even reconstruction in many ways will have innovative elements because, like Storm said, we are are making something new. We cannot use the exact same old methods. We have to make them new again. But innovation is the process of making something entirely new to, to create something that hasn't been, maybe not hasn't been done before, but not done that precise way or that precise combination. Like I know people love to hate on Wicca, but Wicca is an excellent example of an innovative religion. It's, it uses older material in many ways, that whole pagan idea and ceremonial magic, which was already old <laughs> from our perspective during uh, Wicca's uh, emergence, but it's innovative. It's a new combination, a new way to approach something that obviously has existed before in many different ways. And it's my belief that polytheisms have space for innovation they thrive on innovation and exactly because they're not dogmatic they're not strict and authoritative in the sense of oh um if the pope says no you cannot do it uh it's possible to be hellenic polytheist and be very different from the next hellenic polytheist and the one after them and so forth it's it's good i mean people uh, often whine about that and be in our uh, consider it a pitfall and problem of the communities because yes it leads to infighting and fragmentization but it, it was never a problem in itself it's human nature that creates all the drama it's not the problem of the religion itself being decentralized or polycentric better even the ancients could i mean we glorify even pagans, even non-pagans, they glor- we glorify the ancients. But in this, they were true. They saw someone, they went to a different land, and they saw a god that was like theirs, and they were like, oh, this is like our Dionysus or our Zeus or our whatever. And they made new practices. Like, oh, how are they doing it here in this land? Because in this land, he, even though we recognize this as a form of our God, he will not like it if we do it our old way, because that's only that's how it works back home. So how can we adapt? Obviously, there was conquest and suppression and oppression and destruction at all times. Greeks spoke of people, other people as barbarians. No one was perfect. Um, because pagans tend to fall in this um, trap of uh, 
not being able to say that the ancients were very uh, wrong in some cases, very misogynistic. They had slaves, they killed people. They <laughs> and at the same time, trying to be to very, they were very um, liberal in some ways in with matters that Christianity has suppressed and oppressed, like uh, gender expression and uh, mysticism and personal connection to, to the divine and all those things. But, uh, sorry, I digressed, but the thing, the point is, I believe that innovation is a vital part of all kinds of polytheism. And for me, for what I do is I start with the past. I start with the ancient material with the reconstructionist approach, with the academic approach. How can we study this information that already exists and how, what can it can give us? And when it comes to the mystery traditions, it is very little <laughs> because they kept the secrets. They kept it uh, secret and hidden. We have some material, it's but it's not usable on its own the way other parts of the religion are reconstructable completely. Uh, this one is, and it's not enough in any way. And that's when I move into revivalism, which is, okay, I have this basis, this framework, this foundation of the historical material. And how can I um, fill that in? How can I take it further and fill in the gaps with theology and the the spirit of the idea that, oh, yes, the mystery cults dealt with the afterlife, they dealt with intimate experience of uh, the divine. Based on that, how can I draw forth a, an interpretation that is revivalist in the sense that it still hinges on what I, I learned from the ancient material, but it's about how it can be adapted today, how it can be expanded today. And then it goes into innovation, which is, okay, I've got this, I got the historical foundation, I've got the revivalist modern framework. How can I make it something workable? <laughs> how can I make it something that works, that is effective, that people will want to do it they will because the the biggest point of it all is that it's useful to the people who want to do it and to the gods it addresses it's all about the religious interaction it's not about me selling a lot of books which i hope i will do <laughs> But that's not the point. It's also not the point to simply make people feel good or amazing or, oh, I am this super amazing uh, initiate with 30,000 different titles. Uh, it's about how the person who goes through the material can arrive at these experiences of the gods and how the gods can, how they can approach this person. Because... Something I wanted to say before during the conversation is that you cannot create things from scratch as a polytheist if you don't have something to inspire you. That's why a lot of people fall into 
uh, Christianity with many gods, essentially, <laughs> because that's all they know. Yeah, that's the, you can only pull from what you know, and that's also why it doesn't work if you out of the blue, you, it's your first month as a polytheist, and you go, uh, Zeus, Hecate, or whoever I'm worshiping, teach me, because the gods cannot inter, they cannot give you information that you can absorb if you don't have a, f- a means of absorbing it. I know it I took years to understand some things because I didn't have the necessary framework. I couldn't comprehend the knowledge that was given to me because I had no way to decode it, basically. I had no way to understand what that is. A friend of mine told me something that is a very, I think it uh, works very well in this instance, that he asked during a very intimate ritual why his uh, why the, his gods want him to do this kind of work of reaching out and of creating certain services and certain doing certain contributions. Why? And his actual question was to the gods: Why can't you do that? Why can't you approach the people yourself like you approached me? And the reply was because some don't listen and some cannot listen at at least as far at least at their current point people aren't i mean if we could just all of us listen easily to gods and spirits there would be no doubt about it there would be no fighting and no nothing there would be no atheists and no (laughs) like you can just experience it right away and that doesn't happen. People have to become able to process that information. Just like I was explaining the other day to my uh, boyfriend, there are all these scents around us, all these things that we cannot smell because we're not dogs, but dogs can smell them. The world looks very different to a dog. It's the same world, but we don't have the means to to approach and to absorb that information. And it's the same with spiritual and religious matters. You need, that's why training is so important in so many traditions, because you need to open up. You need to gain or awaken these senses that allow you to, well, if not, maybe not see gods and spirits, but at least recognize that interaction when it happens, because we all know the ancestors scream at our ears at all times, but we rarely listen. And what I'm trying to do is essentially that, give people, some people, hopefully, a way to open up the such channels to be like, uh, okay, if you go through these ritual processes, you will hopefully, if you do it right, you will align yourself with the proper channels to have your own experience of the gods and your own experience of the mysteries. It's not about making this um, super secret society where I am Grand Hierophant or <laughs> this, um, or to call myself the only truth or all my system is uh, will give you perfect uh, experience of all gods and mysteries it's entirely up to the individual but i want to be able to give people the means the tools to 
do that in a Hellenic perspective, in a Hellenic context, because a lot of these tools, and I know from experience because I went through that, are from other traditions. They are from witchcraft or uh, ceremonial magic, the grimoire tradition. Those go through this whole spirit work from, well, more dominant, um, when more relating to dominance and suppression, but still they have that taking the power of, of the gods and our god or whatever they purport. But I wanted to give a something new, something current to people who follow the same gods as me, basically. <laughs> and innovation is central to that because, like I said, we don't have enough material. If we were lucky enough to have a surviving mystery cult or to, uh, oh, we just unearthed an entire uh, pile of inscriptions that details exactly what the mysteries were about, that would be amazing, obviously, but it still wouldn't be enough because that ended. We don't have, I mean, the ancient mysteries required certain priests and certain places and certain times that we do not have access to. Even if we knew the entire information from start to finish, we don't have that anymore. We don't have the, the initiatory lines. We don't have the genealogies. We don't have the training. And we, we don't have the buildings anymore. So for me, I'm trying to do something that applies to people today in the 21st century. A very simple example that I've used with people who are curious about how they can adapt uh, Hellenic polytheism to the modern day is that a central, very central uh, concept of ancient Hellenic polytheism was the hearth, the household practices centered around the hearth of the house. We don't have that anymore. We don't have, it's very rare, at least in Greece, that um, apartments and houses will have a fireplace. But the only thing close to the hearth is the oven or the kitchen or something like that. But we don't use it that way. You're not going to place an altar on your kitchen, on your oven. <laughs> That's a fire hazard. And people struggle to do things because so many things have changed about even daily life. We don't have open source of flames in most cases, unless they are a candle or something. We don't have communal fountains to draw water from so that we have particular local divinities that are water gods and river gods. We, at most rivers in Athens are either dry or underground. And in ancient times, they were very full, very open and very sacred. You have to adapt to the mod to modern times, and some things don't translate over anymore, and other things have to have to be adapted entirely, or we even have new needs that didn't exist before. So I'm trying to fill one very small <laughs> gap in uh, all of that, and that's, that's a really good point yeah. about new needs that didn't exist before. 
That's mm-hmm. a really interesting point. We, we, you know, it, it, it's easy for us to envision um, things that don't exist as much anymore. You know, like I might have an altar on the back of my stove up on that little ledge, or I might, I actually told someone once to put a little altar, a small miniature one in the little room that their furnace was in, because that was as close as they were going to get for a hearth deity. But um, yeah, we've got needs that just didn't exist back then. You know, some fundamental needs are always going to be there, but other things aren't nearly the same as they were for commerce or for food or for other things that were so important back then. They're just yeah. structured differently now. Yeah, exactly. very much so. Especially with the uh, the convenience our world now offers, that convenience wasn't there. You know, back then you had to either have a very, very uh, generous neighbor or you had to grow your own food and care for your own flock and butcher your own meat and salt it and cure it and make sure that everything is just so, so, and, you know, we, now we go to the grocery store to get all that stuff. So we don't have to worry about that. We're disconnected from the land. We're disconnected from the, the water or a uh, lake or river spirits now, because it comes right out of our tap and our kitchen. The ancient, the ancient gods probably would, there would, the ancient text would not probably have a listing for what God is, is called upon to keep plastic particles out of the ocean. I'm betting that's right. not there. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, compliment you on is the fact that you essentially created your own scientific method when it came to creating this uh, new mystery practice. I mean, you have an entire process that mirrors the scientific method beautifully. And I, I think it's wonderful. And I think a lot of practitioners would actually benefit from adapting something sort of like that, because we need to remember that what little amounts of information that we have are from regional places that that's not even from the, the practice as a whole, you know, even what you have is probably very regional to specific areas. And even then it's probably just pictures into the past of like, Oh, well, this city used to practice this way with this deity. And then over here, they would practice this way with this deity, you know, and it was totally different sides of the country that probably didn't interact with each other enough to have an understanding of what the other one did with their God, or maybe they did. We don't know, yeah. you know? Um, so the, the work that you're going through to reconstruct a huge chunk of what was missing out of the Hellenic practice is, is wonderful and beautiful. And I think you're doing such a great job and you're being so careful and meticulous about it too, um, because you understand the importance of it being well-received by others, because it is an important practice that others really need. And I, I'm really looking forward to your book coming out because I feel like the Norse tradition is actually lacking in something similar you know, we have ideas of how these things work and we can pull from other practices, but there aren't quite anything as intimate and deep as what you're talking about. You know, we have our own viewpoints into our own past and we can guess this is the right direction or maybe they did it like this or 
you know, and there are certain deities we can call on, but we're still kind of floundering. You know, we're, we're several steps behind you in that respect, but I'm, I'm grateful for the work you're doing. I think it's awesome. Thank you. Really. Thank you for all these compliments. Uh, um, I definitely, and I definitely agree with the point that all the information we have is, it's either very regional, like in Hellenic polytheism, it's almost always centered on Athens because Athens had so many written sources survive uh, because of the connection with the, you know, it's the home of Socrates and Plato and uh, so many philosophers. But it's also another thing that people forget is that the information we have spans centuries, if not millennia, in many cases. Like you will see information about rituals that some a bit of the information is from the classical age and then the Hellenistic and then it goes all the way back to the Mycenaean and then all the way forward to the late antiquity. And I'm I'm trying to tell other people on when we discuss these things that don't forget that how much pagan and polytheist traditions have changed in the last 20 years. We cannot just expect 700, 1,000, 2,000 years of history to be identical. We have to piece things together because obviously things are fragmented, but people changed even in very ancient times when change was more gradual and more slow, not as fast as you know modern times with technology and all that. And the dissemination of information was much slower, but it, they did change. They forgot things after a few generations in some cases, and in other cases they maintained, you know, collective ideas for centuries. But uh, in general, I'm just trying to do something useful because I'm not a commu- very, I'm not a very extroverted person. I'm not very good with community service and. Um, you know, being around people because <laughs> people are exhausting. Uh, That's legit. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. And I don't call myself a priest because uh, at least, well, priests aren't only, you know, for a community thing. It's also for more uh, worship and services to gods as well. But I don't call myself a priest. It's just like I don't call myself a reconstructionist because I know that what I offer and what I can offer is some of it is practical and most of the work I'm currently doing and I'm publicly doing is the work of the theologian, the scholar, the the, the person up in his tower writing things and letting people read them. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I, I do really like it. I, I think that there's such a value and I, I agree with Storm completely that there's a need for, I, I think there's a lot of communities that need this. I mean, if, if your book is structured as a way of, of deepening aspects of your practice while still remaining the un, under the umbrella of a larger community, creating more uh, stronger practitioners and, and maybe more specialists in the process. I, I don't see how anybody could think that's a bad idea. I mean, that just seems to make so much sense to me. Well, not even just stronger practitioners or people within the community, but just stronger people in general. Yeah. You know, we need more rounded, more 
empathetic, compassionate people within the world. And if this is something that'll help them down that road, then yeah, go do it. You don't need, in my opinion, you don't even need to be a polytheist or a pagan or whatever to go through a a mystery tradition to find yourself or to find that which is hidden from you in this moment. You know, if it makes you grow as a person, go for it. So I, w- I want to make sure I'm clear right, this is, with what you're working on with your process, with it being more, as, as Storm said, more scientific, is this like a process of doing the deep research and then coming up with rituals and then making sure that they're duplicatable and then, and then expanding them outwards from there. Is that kind of how the process looks? Yeah, it starts very, basically the book has three parts. The first part is a very scholarly one that, I mean, I'm trying not to make it too academic because <laughs> I also don't have as much of uh, contact with academia in years. So I'm, and I, Greek academia is not the same necessarily as American one. So uh, the standards will be different. I'm trying to at least ground it on actual scholarly research, scholarly books. What, which, what Sarant said before, scholars and academics are not priests, they're not religious authorities, and we shouldn't treat right. them as such. And it's a point I've made online and on Twitter, and Sarah has probably seen it. Academia is either secular or Christian in most cases. It cannot be relied upon to be a religious source, because always, and it, it's why I struggle to read certain uh, sources nowadays, because they will treat the gods as in in worse in the worst cases as huge delusion of the ancient people and just uh, or in most cases they just uh, examine the religion as a very social phenomenon and not as an actual real spiritual existence and if we want to be actual polytheists and actual pagans and actual practitioners and not just if we don't say those of us who don't subscribe to the idea that it's all symbols and it's all archetypes, those who of us who see them as real beings, real existing individuals, <laughs> we have to treat them differently. And we cannot rely on the idea of someone who cannot comprehend the possibility that, oh, this practice happened in that way because the other side, the side of the gods, responded. It wasn't because so many times I see that, oh, but why were they doing this? It doesn't make sense. And I'm like, well, maybe because the gods said, yes, thank you. We like that. Do it. <laughs> I think this gets, to, this gets to a point that, that we've had to encounter several times online and off. The myths are not our gods. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the myths are the very surface of the religion and really the actual practice very frequently ignored or even contradicted the myths completely. And the myths are the easy way for people with no, with difficult, uh, with little education and with difficult uh, uh, difficulty to store information in ancient times to pass on very simply certain knowledge and certain things. The uh, Homeric hymn to Demeter and the whole idea of the Eleusinian mysteries is the actual mysteries were more complicated and people experienced them and they didn't have to go through this process as the Christians did to write down things very detailed and very specifically. We have 
it's a matter of how things were at the time and what needs these things fulfilled. And in modern times, we we have the means to store information. All of us or most of us are, if not highly educated, then at least to a point where we can easily read, easily comprehend, easily access information. Most of us, I mean, anyone who listens to this or who reads my book obviously has internet. So (laughs) it's my process is with that in mind, that people have the capacity and the knowledge to do things on their own and to be guided to an extent. That's why, for example, a main point in the whole mystery traditions is the secret name of the main divinity, the main deity. And don't reveal that name in my book. I, it wouldn't be a mystery if I just told them, oh, it's so-and-so. <laughs> The point is the process should guide you to a point where you can get that name for yourself. It might not be the same I get, but that's why it's not a a closed mystery tradition and it's a book that (laughs) creates something new. The idea is that I'm trying to... um, Take the very, as I said, the first part that is very scholarly and then go through the theological part, which is more modern. It's my opinions, essentially, (laughs) and my interpretations of what patterns I see in ancient times, what, uh, what, how I understand the gods, because a theologian is not someone who just, in the Christian way, the theologian is someone who simply interprets the religion and the will of God and whatever, but not in an authority, not in a way that includes opinion, personal opinion, because you cannot have diverging opinions in a religion with absolute truth, obviously. But polytheism doesn't have that problem. Polytheism is open to many interpretations and many approaches. So it's just my approach. Polytheistic theologians should be about how can I make this accessible to people who cannot afford or cannot manage to try and get through difficult and very flawed academic material. Actually, what you're saying is really inspired to me. And I would like to, I don't have a gavel, so we'll knock on wood here. I have a proposal for the assembled committee here today, because this is a term that I have found problematic in my own personal practice. And I know, Sarah, that Caitlin, you struggled with it as well. And based on these conversations, what I would like to propose is that when you have something that is a revelation to you, and and while you're busy seeing if it's repeatable, we ditch the term UPG, unverified personal gnosis, and go with a personal mystery. Yes. Yeah. Personal mystery. I think it's much more fitting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm already doing that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been dispensing with UPG as a term for years because it is so judgmental. And wrong. If it's gnosis, it's not, you, yes. it's not unverified or personal. <laughs> well, I, 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 I like the idea of personal mystery because that yes. has built into it a building process. If it happens to me personally and I can verify that I can repeat it for myself, then I might be able to share it with others. And if they can start repeating those same results, then what's it become? 
a tradition. Look, we discovered a mystery tradition. And I think I, that we need to be very clear. This is different from I have a different interpretation of the myths or I have a different right. understanding. Yep. These are experiences. This is gnosis. This is knowing. This is I had this happen to me or I had this experience with not, oh, I just have a different understanding of how this myth is supposed to go. That's not gnosis. Sorry, I I want to um, reiterate a point that you made, Jim, was uh, if I can repeat this process and have the same result or a similar result in the same vein, that would be a personal mystery. Doing it just the one time and trying it again and having it fail, I don't think would fall underneath the idea of personal mystery necessarily. No, because that would that would be an insight, an inspiration. I mean, if we're looking at it scientifically, this is like, ooh, look, I got one result. Now is it repeatable or closely repeatable? Right. <laughs> the the important word is repeatable. Can you repeat this experience? Yes. Um, That's the whole point of the book, too. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 for me, it will succeed if I get even a few people saying, oh, I read your book, I did the rituals, and I had these experiences, even if they are not the same as mine, but they're in the same vein of mythical experiences with the same um, concept, context, I guess, uh, then for me, I've been successful because the point is to share something that is useful and effective, not to just share my pontifications on <laughs> uh, Hellenic Polythians, because I can easily do that online. <laughs> I don't have to write a book. Um, so, yeah. I do know that we have to wrap up soon. Um, so mm-hmm. do you have a date in which your book will be released or is it to be announced still? Uh, it's to be announced because I'm still uh, only three m- m- or four months into the whole uh, <laughs> process. It started uh, early June, but... You have um, a very I, good grasp and understanding of the book for having it be that short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I do. Thank you. I, it's because I actually do have a deadline of sorts according to my the terms of my fellowship grant. I need to present the project in in a more or less completed form by June 2022. Uh, Not not necessarily have it published by then, but I should have at least finished the writing and the book should be uh, on its way. Uh, So I'm hoping next year uh, after summer 2022, I should be in the process, if not published, then very close to being published if everything goes as planned. So um, well, about where your, can, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, where can people find you online if you're open to that sort and, of communication? And your Patreon. And your yes. Patreon. Yes. <laughs> and the Patreon, yes. Um, basically, anywhere you can Google, if you can just Google my the name Heldorius, you will find me. <laughs> you will only find me, basically. So uh, you can find me on Twitter, mainly. It's my currently most active social media. Uh, I'm sort of inactive lately because people are a lot. (laughs) But uh, that's my preferred social media because I do a lot of writing. So obviously, um, Twitter is better than Instagram. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. 
you can find me on Patreon again as Kelly Doris. And you can also find my still-in-progress uh, website, which is more geared towards the practical and magical, not so much the theological, but it has links to everything else, <laughs> uh, on greekwits.com. Thanks for, for having the patience to come back. And as I knew we would, we actually kind of covered some new ground this time around and, mm-hmm. and uh, got some additional things going on here. So it was, it was a fantastic interview and uh, glad to have you on a second slash third time. So <laughs> let us know when that book's ready to come out. <laughs> I, I, I would really hope so. Oh, and maybe a last thing that it's very, uh, it's coming up in the, towards late October the center of the, um, for global polytheist and indigenous traditions that uh, funded my project is doing a conference on reviving polytheism, of which I am a part and I'm making a presentation on this on the project. And there will be other very, very good uh, people and very uh, educated and interesting presenters. So, so if anyone is up for that, they can look it up and maybe I'll make register. Sure to put all the links in the show notes too. So, yes. thank you so much for coming so much. back. I've really enjoyed thank talking you. to you again. You're really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me a second, first time. And <laughs> I really hope this time it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same. We have, I'm too. looking at the redundant recording right now. I have it. <laughs> so we have a backup even. So uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you to all of our listeners and Patreon supporters. And if you can't support us through Patreon, feel free to join our Discord server and just hang out with us or leave a show review, share the show with other people. There's a lot of people out there that are interested in Hellenic polytheism, and we hope that they would enjoy this episode as well. So give us a good review and share the show. And with that, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time around the fire. <laughs>